1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappy, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks for joining me today for an interview with Roy Chan about his new book, The Edge of Knowing, Dreams, History, and Realism in Modern Chinese Literature. This came out in 2017 with the University of Washington Press. Now, as you'll hear us talking about for the next hour, the book itself takes us from the early May 4th period through the end of the Cultural Revolution in the late 1970s as a way to understand the figure of the dream, of dreaming and dreamers, insomnia, sleep, sleeplessness, light and dark, day and night, insofar as it became significant to deal with ideas of modernity, experiences of modernity, traumas of modernity in modern China. So the chapters take us through the May 4th period, Republican era, the Mao era, the post-cultural revolution era, and they engage not just some really, really fascinating works of literature, and you'll hear us talking about some of them in the hour to come, but there's a lot more in the book that we don't have a chance to vocally get to and it also brings to bear to those readings some really interesting theoretical resources that include semiotics, psychoanalysis, studies of Russian formalism, and you'll hear us talk about the significance of Russian literature, um, to Roy's own background and to the approach that he brings to this particular book. You'll hear us talking um, about other sorts of theoretical resources like Wittgenstein, um, and he also brings Marxist studies and affect studies along with many other theoretical resources to bear on the project. So it's a very thoughtful um, kind of approach to understanding dreams and dreaming. And for those of you who are particularly interested in ways of engaging theoretical resources to readings of Chinese literature, this is going to be a particularly rich study for you. By the end of the book, Roy leaves us with thoughts on the importance of what he calls paying attention to the affective materiality of literary text in order to discover the aesthetic resources for articulating hope. And throughout the conversation, you'll hear the significance of the relationship between politics, materiality, embodiment, literature, language, and aesthetics um, coming up in the context of the individual chapters. So with that, I will leave you to it and just say thank you so much for listening, for being here, for the support of the channel that your listening constitutes, and I hope that you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Roy Chan about his new book, The Edge of Knowing. Welcome to the new uh, New Books in East Asian Studies Podcast. Roy, thanks for making time. Thanks for writing a really fascinating book, and thank you for being here to talk with me about it. I'm looking forward.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm also really looking forward to our conversation. Of
1: course. So, Roy, let's start at the beginning with the big traditional question. What brought you to work on China and why modern Chinese literature um, specifically as your academic field?
0: Yes, that's actually a rather tough question because I had a rather circuitous route to Chinese literature When I was an undergraduate, my major was Russian in comparative literature. So actually, my training was in Russian language and literature. And I thought of Chinese as something as an afterthought. Um, My parents came from Hong Kong and China. And I think they were were always a little bemused that I did Russian and not Chinese. And so I, I started to take Chinese classes in college as a way of, you know, paying back to the parents, yes, I'll say from Chinese. And when I landed in graduate school in Berkeley in the Department of Comparative Literature, I really thought I was gonna write a dissertation on Russian literature with maybe a small Chinese component. Um, But by my second year, I was taking advanced Chinese classes. Just something happened where I had a great advisor. I saw this field that was just this brand new Everest for me decline. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm thinking to make the switch and just go, uh, ahead into it. Not really a, a very well thought out decision because it was much harder than I thought. I had no idea what I was getting into, but I was just driven by this passion, I guess. And so I just went ahead and took it on. Um, really had to work on my language skills, which were not that great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I made this commitment. that I was going to spend. The foreseeable future in the China field. I had done modern Russian literature, and so it seemed natural to do modern Chinese literature. And in many ways, you know, I hesitated for a long time from my childhood on to really study Chinese because I thought about my own upbringing. My parents left uh, Hong Kong and China to seek opportunities in America. And when I was growing up, China was always this place that Thank goodness I wasn't born there. Thank goodness I didn't grow up there because China was always associated with poverty, associated with backwardness, so to speak. And so as a Chinese-American kid growing up in Seattle, you know, China was always that kind of place that you didn't want to think about because you didn't want to think about the fact that very likely I could have grown up there and not in Seattle. And so in many ways, pursuing modern Chinese literature and thinking about modern Chinese history was really my attempt to come to terms with where I came from, mm-hmm. uh, in that sense, to, to understand, to confront what happened in modern Chinese history that eventually caused, for whatever reasons, my parents to leave and come to the United States. And so I think that, for me, was a big draw. It was this almost you know, I don't want to personalize projects too much, but it was almost therapeutic to come to terms with one's own culture, one's own heritage. And in many ways, working with modern Russian literature and Soviet literature, where you have a nation that's also undergone tremendous upheaval, prepared me to deal with the upheavals that happened in China. And so that's kind of how I got into the modern Chinese field.
1: That's so interesting um, to hear and also inspiring on lots of different levels. So it's um, interesting to hear that your background is in Russian literature, because as we'll talk about over the course of the hour, Russia and Russian literature does come up quite a few times in the book, right? So this actually is starting to make a lot of sense. And also um, just hearing your own process and coming to this uh, project. It also, you know, kind of reminds me this, that as adults, like adulthood, is often a process of trying to find ways to come back to ourselves, right, and, and to to figure out who those people are.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because I kind of have said this when I was beginning this project. I, you know, you don't know. Uh, we we know not what we do, uh, and it's until really this book, you know, was published and was. Finish. that I was really able to kind of understand that trajectory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's really interesting when in the end of it, you realize why you started in the first place.
1: So the subtitle of the book is Dreams, History and Realism in Modern Chinese Literature. So this brings me to my next question, Roy. Why dreams? How did you decide to focus on that as the core of this project?
0: <clears throat> yeah, so I've always been fascinated with dreams since I was a child. Uh, what does it mean to have dreams? What is the experience like? Um, you know, my very first, uh, the very first piece of writing that I ever got recognition for was when I was 14 years old. And I won my grade division of a statewide Holocaust essay contest. And, uh, and, I, and so I wrote an essay about insomnia, Uh, what it's like to not be able to sleep because of the horrors of history. And so dreams and nightmares are something that have always been a big part of my life. Um, And in a scholarly fashion, I've always been interested in the ways in which dreams are a way of experiencing another world, perhaps another way of being But on the other hand, when you think about what a dream is, it causes you to reflect on the present conditions of your own being and your own existence. So dreams are this really powerful heuristic device where we reflect on the very conditions of our being. Um, and I say that with a caveat, because I've met a lot of people, my present partner included, who actually don't have very vivid dream lives. They don't really dream very much. And so it's important not to universalize. Everyone has dreams. Um, but in most cultures, in most societies, dreams do play a, a hugely symbolic role. And so I want to explore that because it was fun for me. Um, and then in 2005, I believe, I was spending the summer in Beijing, and they were... Preparing for the 2008 Olympics, and I noticed that the slogan was, um, uh, one world, one dream. And so I was really interested that this dream rhetoric, this dream figure was being proclaimed on this large scale. And I just finished a seminar on Hong Kong, on Dream of the Red Chamber. And so I've been thinking about dreams of the Bing Qing era. And so, Putting those things together brought me to starting on this project of mining and examining the figure of dreams in modern Chinese literature.
1: So the project started as a PhD dissertation, right?
0: That is correct. So
1: let's talk about that transformation. Um, were there any? Uh, w- what was the transition from dissertation to book like? And were there any major ways or notable ways for you that the project um, and/or its structure significantly transformed in the process from one form to the other?
0: Yes, Um, so there was quite a bit of distance in some ways. between the dissertation and the book, um, first off, I abandoned the dissertation for almost a year after That's I finished really it. Really
1: smart. That's really uh, really good decision. Because I, I I'm
0: exactly, I wanted to work on a second book project, and I figured I was exhausted from the dissertation. I'm going to go ahead and start the second book project, so I can just think about something else. Uh, and then I came back to it, um, and I would say. You know, when you are a graduate student and you're writing a dissertation, more often than not, one of your primary motivations is to prove yourself to your colleagues, to the field. And you're grappling for ways to demonstrate your expertise, demonstrate your knowledge, demonstrate all the work you put into your graduate training. And one of the things that you often don't get to do by the end of your dissertation is to find your voice. Because you're trying to mimic or or, or ape or, or um, you know, cite all these different things. And a and book is quite different. A book really – you really have to find your voice, your narrative, your way of organizing all of that data, all of that analysis into something that's really compelling to a reader. And it took me a lot of rewriting. It took me a lot of workshopping and rewriting, working with multiple publishers, to kind of come back and and think about, okay, what is this about? What is this thing that I want people to read? What is this thing if, you know, should it happen I left academia that I could leave to this field? And I think finding that voice is so important, and it took me a long time to get there. And it took a lot of editing. It took a lot of getting rid of Dozens of pages of analysis, which I thought was great, but didn't really fit into uh, the book. Um, It took a lot of line by line, just rewriting of sentences. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a wonderful editor with the publisher who read every word of my manuscript and gave me frank feedback. And that was just so helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was also about crystallizing the conceptual architecture of the book. You know, when you're writing a dissertation, there's lots of ideas. They don't always come together in a nice, tidy package. And so when you're writing the book, that's when you have that opportunity to be able to do that. And, you know, I, I worked with one publisher and that was a disaster, um, and it was very traumatizing for me. But I'm really, I'm almost glad that I had that disaster because it allowed me more time to uh, to rethink things and to make the book better. And I think the book is a lot better for it. Um, and so the other thing is really embracing that serendipity of that process, whereby a dissertation becomes a book, um, and to be able to have the chance to produce something that you can stand by and feel proud of. Mm-hmm.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Roy, so much. Let's actually... For listeners, then dive right into it. So the book looks very closely at 20th century literature that emphasizes sleeping and dreaming as a way to kind of reckon with the trauma of modernity from the early May 4th period through the end of the Cultural Revolution and beyond. And so um, the chapters take us through the Republican era, the Mao era, the post-cultural revolution era, and then the end of the book takes us beyond into kind of our contemporary world. The first chapter looks at what you call the transformation of time under the rise of capitalist modernity. Here you talk about the reorganization of the relationship and boundaries of day and night. As you say, night itself became a temporal territory that could be far more easily colonized and made useful. Time itself became rationalized. Okay, so this um, is a really fascinating chapter, as is probably obvious just from that little thumbnail um, introduction um, for me, and I think probably for lots of listeners, the chapter talks about the ways that realist narrative in this period, as you say, modeled for its readers a modern sense of time. So, Roy, let's kind of start big. How did Mm -hmm. dreams specifically figure into the way that realist narrative modeled this modern sense of time for readers?
0: Boy, that's a tough question. Yeah. Um, in two ways. Uh number one, uh in this modern era, in the early 20th century, another thing that's being rationalized are dreams themselves, mm-hmm. right? So psychoanalysis as a kind of science is going to explain uh, what, the, what dreams are, in particular Freud is important because uh, he, he recognizes that dreams are evidence of what he calls the second reality, which is the unconscious. Uh, it's a royal road. It helps us to understand this other reality that is not physical but which is inside. Our minds. And so, on one hand, uh, when you look at this kind of scientist uh, atmosphere and discourse, they were trying to rationalize the dream, give it an explana- explanation, make it fit into uh, this rational framework that they had. On the other, and this is the friction that I really turn on though, is that they don't quite succeed in doing that right there is a way in which the dream becomes the other of rationalized time the dream is that which gives evidence that this second nature of rational temporality is itself constructed is it's a finite is it is itself has its own boundaries and limits um, and so how have writers sought to use the dream as this symptomatic site in which you can think of the other of the real. Mm -hmm. So other possible futures, other possible presents, even other possible pasts. Um, There's a way in which realist rationality tries to flatten this landscape out. There's only one reality. There's only one space and there's only one time. But as human beings, as political actors, as artists, as teachers, we all know that that's not how time works. (laughs) <laughs> Time is always multiple it 's always um uh, full of different possibilities uh, and so using the dream as this kind of handy way of kind of picking at that and revealing those other pathways uh is is what I was trying to express in that chapter.
1: That's great. Thank you so much. And it ties together so many of the threads in the chapter, right? And as you say here, um, and I'll just kind of throw this out there for listeners, dreams begin to figure really prominently in the writing, right? And much more prominently than they had before. And you take us through these sorts of um, these two impulses that you just described, Mm -hmm. one to bring dreams under the purview of science as a way of modernizing them. And you, you, I think, look really, really interestingly at the relationship between that and the engagement um, with Freud's theories, right, and his ideas Mm -hmm. of dream interpretation, but also the kind of other impulse to work with the enchanting power of dreams, right? right? Um, So this chapter is really, really interesting, I think, in particular for any listeners who are into reflections on modernity and time, um, who want to learn a little bit more about psychology and psychoanalysis as they animated um, Chinese literature in this period. Um, And also just kind of thinking about the connection between desire and reason. Mm -hmm. And that's another really interesting part of what's happening here. I think you're sort of locating desire within this larger kind of rationalizing and reasoning project.
0: Mm-hmm. And if it, please, yeah, I, Can I just add yeah, yeah, sure. one thing to that? So you talk about reason, desire. Mm-hmm. And one of the things uh, when I talk about modernity um, is that we often think of modernity as disenchantment, mm-hmm. right? This is the kind of Bavarian kind of we're disenchanted with, uh, uh, you know, we, we've lost superstition. And we've entered this. And of course, I think when you look at, at modernity, what you find is this dialectic between Disenchantment and reenchantment, right? Um, and one of the most interesting things that I argued in May 4th is that how science became its own enchantment. Mm-hmm. It became its own enchanting discourse in one way or another at the same time that it was claiming to dispel um, all forms of superstition and enchantment. And so I think really thinking through that um, dichotomy dialectic between reason and desire, between rationality and utopia, I think is very important for really getting. A grasp of what modernity feels like.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much. That was exactly what I was going to ask you to talk about, actually, is the desire, reason, and science of Nexus. So let's move from here to the second chapter, which is also completely fascinating. Chapter two looks at a collection of prose poetry by Lu Shun. Now, this collection, um, I'll just use the translations for listeners who um, may not read Chinese, right? Wild Grass. It contains 23 prose poems that Lu Xun wrote between 1924 and 1926, and it was published as a book in book form in 1927. Now, the form of this collection is really, really fascinating, and you talk a lot about it and about its importance here in the chapter, um, so the the form of a prose poem itself is really fascinating, um, and you also talk at a different scale about the dream form of Wild Grass um, mm-hmm. as a collection. So Roy, here's where I hit the ball back to you. Can you okay. talk about um, what you find to be most interesting and important about the form of Wild Grass, um, either at the you know at the scale of prose poem or at the kind of dream form scale of the collection itself?
0: Yeah. Um, so, for me, what I would say is really important is very often when we think about literary text, we separate between its form and its content. And so, its content is that, you know, what, what is it relating to us? You know, what social reality might relate to us, especially if it's realism. And form is kind of this—the um, way that things are organized. It's often seen by conventional readers as being somewhat ornamental. Um, and then dreams. Now, dreams are often seen as mere flits of fancy, fantasy. It's not reality. Um, and so one of the things I, I wanted to highlight in this chapter in grappling with prose poetry is that this thing that we call form, this thing that we often think of as, as being merely ornamental, as encapsulated as a dream, might be another way of coming into contact with the reality of social existence. Um, And so what I'm saying is that there is this kind of realist naivete that if we are confronted with social reality, we will recognize it. We will understand it without thinking about how that social reality is mediated through form itself and without bodies, Without form, without shape, without some kind of aesthetic contact, this relay of social information doesn't work. and what I find and my argument with, with this prose poetry, which is which can be very cotory, very ethereal, very kind of otherworldly, is that it's really exploiting this idea that it is form that makes us notice. it is form that makes us realize. The world in which we live, and so you know, he writes these these prose these prose poetry pieces. And in the very end, the very last um, prose poem is is figured as an almost kind of awakening from dream. Um, and he's at night and he's writing, and he's talking about how literature reminds him that he's living among men. And that's a really interesting idea, right? The idea that it is form that brings us back to the people. It is form that brings us back to human existence, brings us back to Rianjian. And one of the things I'm trying to argue is that this is what this this collection of prose poetry does. It's really kind of hit on this idea of how do we come to know social reality um, and how do we do it through form.
1: And in fact, um, one of the really interesting points you make here, um, I think late-ish in the chapter, is you say that this dream form illuminates what you call the twin concerns of the realist mode. And this is in the words of the book, the imperative towards social empathy and solidarity, as well as the need for critical insight into social reality. So what it is to be a social being um, is kind of all over um, this chapter. Did you want to say a little bit about that or the sort of these twin concerns, right? In the yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and it goes back to that first chapter thinking about the unity of reason and desire, mm-hmm. right. Um, that, that there has to be a, a, motivation for it. I mean, we don't come to these, we are human beings. We don't come to these things like robots without any interest. We come interested into the world. We come interested, um, as social beings, um, the, the, very communicative act of, of an address or an addressee is an interested situation. Um, and yet on the other hand, we also need to be critical about it and make sure that this, this particular configuration is proper. It, it, it works or maybe needs to be renewed. And I think that for me is what Lucian is trying to tell us. It's that, you know, it's all well and good to say, uh, I sympathize with the poor, so I'm going to lift them up through my writing. But then you have to also interrogate your own reasons for doing that, right? Your own motivations uh, for inserting yourself into that situation. Um, I was very inspired by the work of the late Marston Anderson and his book, The Limits of Realism, where he deals quite uh, prominently with this this ethical quandary in Lucian's work and, and very much inspired me. And people can see the influence of uh, Marston Anderson's work on me um, and so, I was just trying to take it a step further and really think about how form rather than something that we might think of as a limiting, can actually be revelatory
1: and mm-hmm. these concerns become really, really clear when you look in this chapter at what you call the somatic orientation of the work, right? And you talk mm-hmm. a lot about the relationship between language and bodies. Mm-hmm. One of the um, pieces of the work that receives special attention in this context is a prose poem called Tremors of Degradation, mm-hmm. which you, um, as a way to kind of give listeners a sense of um, perhaps an example of the kind of work that comes up here in the book, um, could you say a little bit about that, the tremors of degradation? And for you, what's most important or interesting about what's happening there in the context of this larger conversation?
0: Sure. Um, It's a a rather short piece, and yet it's rather complicated to try to summarize exactly what's going on. But a lot of these prose poems have a first-person narrator um, who we might take to be Lucian himself, who's having these dreams or having these kind of visions. And so it uh, starts with him in bed, we see Mushtun in bed and he's having a dream uh, where he sees this scene of tragedy of a single mother uh, who's trying to feed her daughter um, and we gather that she's probably a prostitute of some kind Um, and we hear the cries of the child who's hungry and we see a scene of some kind of sexual congress, or perhaps she was with a client, so on and so forth. Um, And then all of a sudden, uh, we see Lucian wake up from this dream and realize, oh, that was just a dream. Um, Don't worry about it. I can kind of move on. But then he goes back to sleep, and he dreams again. And he dreams basically about the same situation, except that we fast-forwarded like 10 years or so, where the daughter is now grown, um, uh, is married to a man. They have a son, and they're basically throwing out her mother, who's now Elderly throwing her out of the house because she um, is so shameful for having been a prostitute. Um, that's what we can gather from this this prose poem, and then this this um, so this woman this who's now elderly kicked out of her. Family house. Um, she, she starts to tremble and quake, and she screams this primal scream of desperation. And the ripples of her body just dissolving into, into the air cause the, this, this havoc in, in the world. And it uh, wakes up Lu Shun, and He wakes up, and um, and and, uh, and he wakes up in this terror. And uh, he realizes that um, his hands have been pressed against his chest, and that's actually what somatically caused him to wake up. What I find so interesting about this prose poem, and with many of these other prose poems, is the ways in which this narrator is an embodied narrator. And not just in the sense of, you know, the narrator appears as I, the narrator's body is figured. We, we see Lucian on that bed as he's dreaming of this situation. <laughs> And in many ways, it becomes a certain kind of critique and examination of what it means to write about others. That it is not some disembodied head coming up with a social scenario. We, the narrator or authors have bodies. We do these things somatically. We work with text. We work with language. We work with ideas as embodied beings. Uh, And that there's this relationship between the embodiedness of the creator and the bodies that they create in the literary work. And there's an analogy. There's a certain relationship between the two. And I think that's what's so brilliant about Lu Shun here is that he writes himself violently into this piece and saying, yes, I am here, too. I am not this omniscient narrator. I am not this otherworldly conscious. I, too, am a flesh and blood human being writing with my hands about flesh and blood.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you. Now, as we move from here into the next chapter, and um, we won't have time to talk in detail about it, but as we move from here to there, we're skipping over a whole bunch of other really fascinating stuff that's happening in this chapter, right? I mean, chapter two Mm -hmm. also um, thinks about the relevance of Wittgenstein and his notion of language games for what's going on. Um, It considers sort of the first person, the eye of wild grass. It looks at, Mm -hmm. among other words, Lucian's preface to a volume. Name of translations by a blind Russian anarchist writer, Vasily Eroshenko. So this kind of nods to this background in Russian literature that you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot in here for listeners who become readers to explore um, that we won't have a chance to talk much about, but we will have a chance to talk about what's happening at least partially in the next chapter. Chapter sure. 3 opens with Mao Dun's abridged version of Dream of the Red Chamber and it continues on to to focus on Mao Dun's fiction. Now, you show us early on um, in the chapter as a way to kind of take us into the relevance of Mao Dun and his work for this larger exploration of dreams, right, and dreaming Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. this context. You show us that he had a sense of dreams as a dangerous distraction. So I Mm -hmm. think this is perhaps a good place um, to start diving into this chapter. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: um, Sure. So, Mauldin, in many ways, is the prototypical realist author. He writes these long, sprawling narratives about social reality, whether it be in the city or whether it be in the countryside. He has a reputation by the 1930s as this social chronicler, you know, perhaps the Balzac of China in some ways. I don't know if you actually said that, but, you know, uh, he's compared to Zola at one point, by actually. And so, you know, he is the prototypical realist in a way that Lucian never is. and when you look at what he's saying about literature and what he's saying about realism, you really get this sense that for him, realism and reality is all about the editing. It's all about what you get rid of and what you leave behind. So you get rid of all the superstition, you get rid of all the fantasy, you get rid of all the dreams, and what you're left with is reality. And that's what he was trying to do with Dream of the Red Chamber. You get rid of all of the fantasy, you get rid of all the lyric poetry. And what you're left with is a social novel about free marriage, so he says in his preface
1: right
0: and he's directly inspired by um Channdozio and ho sure so that's an interesting impulse, right that realism is about um excision right it's about getting rid of stuff, and you can't help but think that when that there's something almost impulsive even psychological about that move trying to get rid of something you don't like you think is is dangerous and of course every time you do that every time you repress something the repress comes back and so that was the dynamic i was trying to identify in malden's narratives he's trying he's constantly trying to create a boundary between reality and fantasy and yet fantasy always works itself way back into the narrative Perhaps in spite of himself, um, and it was—it's that dynamic um, that I try to kind of analyze. You know, a lot's been written about Malden's depictions of women, and that women are often uh, these objects these are figures of unrestrained desire. Uh, they suffer because of it, and they have to be disciplined to understand reality. So there's this weird way in which reality and fantasy is gendered in Malden's texts, right? Reason and rationality and narration is very masculine. Dreaming, desire, sexuality is very feminine. Uh, some have argued that this betrays Malden's uh, misogyny or Malden's kind of lack of enlightenment when it comes to kind of gender issues. Uh, what I try to show is that what if we saw this, you know, the hysterical women in his text as symptomatic. Of another kind of hysteria, and that's the hysteria of the text itself. This text is trying to create this artificial divide between reality and fantasy and using the women characters as the literal sacrificial victim, which is a term he uses in one of his novels, uh, a sacrificial victim for the very desire that realism has to disavow.
1: Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. So you talk um, specifically about the ways that dreams figure in Mao Dun's Eclipse trilogy. And you take us through um, the three works um, in great detail and in really fascinating detail. And those works for listeners who haven't yet become readers are Disillusionment, Vacillation, and Midnight. Um, and there's a lot going on here, right? In the in the case of disillusionment, um, you talk among many other things about the significance of dreaming as its associated with the heroine Jing Mm -hmm. Um, in Vacillation. You bring us into I mean, this is a kind of key scene Um, anytime I have conversations about Mao Duan, right? A a scene in which Mrs. Fong, one of the characters, imagines herself as a spider. Um, And in Midnight you talk, um, among many other things, about the connection between dreaming and the economy. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot I mean, we could could talk uh, for the rest of our time just about this trilogy and dreams within it but um, as a kind of example for listeners of some of what's going on here, for you, and I'll, I'll keep this very open, um, what do you find most fascinating and important about uh, what's happening with dreams in this trilogy? Like, is there a moment or a particular work that you find particularly engaging and illuminating insofar as dreams are animating what's happening in this trilogy?
0: Sure. Um, let me just clarify that uh, Midnight is not part of the trilogy of right. Eclipse. It's right. its own That's self-standing right. novel. That's right. Um, so there's a third um, in the trilogy, um, uh, Pursuit, J. Chill, I believe, uh, that I don't uh, really grapple with. Uh, I just really grapple with those the first two um, stories in the Got Eclipse. Got it. Thank you so much. Um, and Midnight's its own self-standing, uh, long, sprawling novel. Um, yeah, it's 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 uh it's <laughs> what do I think? You know, this is a chapter that I, I pay attention to the least <laughs> when I think about my book. <laughs> Although I actually quite enjoy this, I really enjoyed working with this chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in all of it, I think it's this idea of, uh, you know, again, this the return of the repressed,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: Um, the ways in which a text prefigures things that perhaps its creator was not unaware of and creates a certain kind of tension, a certain kind of conflict that manifests itself somewhere. Um, And and you find that in Maldon a lot. And you can't help but find that because Maldon was so fastidious about trying to uh, undergird the reality of his text, saying, you know, this is what's real, this is what's important. And yet, in spite of these professions, it nevertheless indulges in fantasy, indulges in dreams anyway. Um, And I I find that really interesting, this way in which it really takes us to what I call the edge of knowing, right? Uh, That in the very process of trying to come to knowledge, uh, we create these unforeseen consequences that pop up beyond our consciousness, but hit us later, right? In that sense he's very different from Lucian Lucian is one of those guys who the one of the reasons why I think Lucian is so brilliant is that he's able to see that he's able to see both sides of the coin and he and he's constantly showing you evidence of that. Malden doesn't really do that he can't because he's so wedded to this commitment to reality and to his way cause a razor sharp rationality um but as any of us who you know have friends know that anyone who's uh, dogmatic about anything, they'll all of a sudden betray the extent to which they actually believe things are un- uh, unorthodox or undogmatic. And I think that was kind of you know, it's this quandary of knowledge in Maldon that I was really trying to kind of um, come to terms with.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. So let's move from here to the fourth chapter. This is Sleepless Nights in Fast Socialism, Dream Rhetoric and Fiction in the Mao Era. So this looks at, this chapter, chapter four, looks at the theme of what you call temporal disjuncture in the Mao Era. Now it identifies three forms of temporal disjuncture, and we won't necessarily have time to talk at length about all three, but I'll name them and then kind of um, ask you to talk about uh, at least a couple of them. So the first form is what you call a rhetoric of transition. The second form is um at least insofar as I um I, you know, read it, is the importance of sleep sleeplessness rather, as a cultural logic of accelerated socialist accumulation, as you put it here in the book. And then you talk about the form of revolutionary nostalgia. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's, um, cut into the first form of temporal disjuncture. This is the, what you call a rhetoric of transition. Now here Mm -hmm. to bring us back to the Russians, right? You introduce Nikolai Mm Chernyshevsky's what is to be done. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk a little bit about this. Why did this particular work become so important for the work that the chapter is doing? Why Chernyshevsky?
0: Right. Well, Chernyshevsky is important because um, he's, a, he's a realist, um, but he's one of those radical realists uh, who was a staunch materialist of the 1860s. Uh, he's very much a radical. Um, Dostoevsky couldn't stand Chernyshevsky. Uh, and, and when you read what is to be done, which is um, becomes really this Bible of the radical Reference at the 1860s and beyond. At one point, people are using What Is to Be Done um, in the place of the Bible at wedding ceremonies. Um, What Is to Be Done is a very bizarre realist novel because it uh, oscillates between um, a typical uh, realist narrative and dream scenes, dream sequences of this utopia. Um, and towards the end of the novel, you have a certain kind of combination of realism and utopia uh in this wondrous crystal palace in which everyone is joined in, in song i mean it's a, it's a bizarre novel uh to the point that most uh most people who love Russian literature declare it unreadable. And yet this was the major novel among the radicals So certainly Lenin's favorite novel. Um, and it becomes translated to Chinese at some point. And so people know uh, something about what is to be done. Um, in this chapter, I was actually not looking at what is to be done, although it's important that association is really important. I was looking at um, his master's thesis uh, about the aesthetic relation to reality. And it's a, uh, it's a very curious kind of um, Text uh, that he wrote um, that gets translated into Chinese um, uh, in 1940. It's in the 1940s by Zhou Yang. And Zhou Yang is well known as kind of the lead literary critic of Yan'an and the PRC state. Um, and it's interesting because it gets picked up in the 1950s by Wang Roshui in the People's Daily, and he was the head of the uh, theory. The theory and propaganda unit of, of people's dealings is running these editorials and and he's quoting from this 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 thing about what is relationship between art and reality um, as a way of figuring the relationship between where we are now in the early 1950s and where we want to get to in full communism. And the relationship is that art, when you see what Chernyshivsky is saying is that when you see a work of art that's depicting some kind of a wondrous landscape or some kind of amazing uh, setting, what it is, it's, it's saying that reality needs to be made better. It's, uh, it's a spur, um, a, a kind of agitation that reality hasn't caught up yet, that we need to make reality beautiful, because for Chernyshivsky, the real source of beauty is not in form, it is in life and reality itself, right? Um, uh, He says, beauty is like And so these weird materialists as tell you to the 1860s, and of course, Krzyzewski is answering people like Schiller, Hegel, uh, as well as the Russian critics of the 1840s and the Stankiewicz circle, and all of them folks. He's also saying, you know, um, beauty is to be found in revolution beauty is to be found in the social and in transforming the social into some kind of perfection. So to see Wang Roshui kind of quote from that piece and use it to talk about China's transition into uh, uh, socialism and communism, we see the ways in which aesthetic form is really, you can argue, is at the heart of the political imagination for them right? That aesthetics wasn't simply a tool of of political indoctrination, as is often we read about socialist realism. But really, what they're what I think they were trying to say is that politics itself has its roots in the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. The aesthetic as that which makes us realize what is to be done, what we have to do, and how we get from point A to point B.
1: Now, you also talk in this chapter about the importance of temporal compression mm-hmm. in its relation to something called fast socialism. Can you talk a little bit about that, Roy?
0: Absolutely. So with Wang Roche, this is 1953. This is when the PRC is getting a lot of um, aid from um, the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union is kind of shepherding PRC into socialism, right? Obviously, by the end of the 1950s, that is not the case. Uh, we have tensions that will lead to the South-Soviet split in 1960. Um, and what you have is this transition of rather than this kind of gradual transition where we'll be tutored by these Soviet experts, instead, you know, we the Soviets are not our friends anymore. We have to do it alone um, on the basis of our own resources. And this kind of thinking, of course, leads to the Great Leap Forward we're going to torpedo ourselves in the modernity simply based on the reserves and resources that we can somehow extract from ourselves. And so, in this frenzy of what I call, you know, accelerated socialist accumulation, um, uh, you, you have the sense in which time becomes compressed; every single second is productive. Every single second has to be mined for the value you can um, produce out of it. And what I argue happens in the literary imagination is this temporal compression where day becomes night and night becomes day. So those typical divides of the diurnal cycle whereby a person works and then rests gets collapsed in the literary imagination of the late 1950s and early 1960s. And so you have stories about the night shift. Um, you know, one of the stories I look at is about a woman tractor driver and how she only works the night shift uh, and sleeps during the day. And so I was really interested in how Larry texts completely refigured the way in which you organize a day in order to, to meet these productive imperatives of fast socialism.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And the chapter also um, along these lines, I think, oh, there's Canada. There's yeah. Oh, Canada, this is what happens when you are on the water. Thank yes. you, Canada, please. Okay, so we are in Canada, or I am in Canada, at least, listeners. Um, but I was saying what's really interesting um, is that along these lines, when you're talking about um, this kind of reorganization of diurnal, diurnal patterns and day becoming night and vice versa, you also show us the ways in which light becomes a really central trope at mm-hmm. the heart of what you call the ideological fantasy central or an ideological fantasy central to the Mao era, and you talk about um, kind of in the physical world the significance of illumination, right? Constant mm-hmm. illumination and, and sort of physical light. Um, do you want to talk about that uh, a little bit? The significance of light and um, illumination um, to what's happening in this literary context that you're taking us into?
0: Sure. And with uh, the illumination, I was very much inspired by Wolfgang Shiva Bush's book *Disenchanted um, Nighting Theme*. Uh, you know, modern lighting of the city uh, in Europe uh, in, the, in the 19th century. Um, but when we look at the PRC, you know, um, I always show uh, a poster to my students um, of um, light bulbs literally coming to the countryside and these peasant women who are so joyful to have a basket of light bulbs, right? Um, and so... And so there was this very practical reason to bring electricity to bring light to the countryside right you know so that so that they would have light, and also that you could work the land at nightfall you could you could be productive at night rather than just kind of going into slumber but there's also this figurative symbolic ideological significance of the light of Maoist knowledge, the light of correct epistemological whatever. So this thing where I always where I say that light is always already its own figure. Right? It's already uh metaphorizing itself. And it becomes this thing where everything is illuminated all the time in this almost Fucodian panopticon kind of a level. And so where can you hide from this light? Um and it illuminates everything so that there are no divides. There's no divides between day and night, there's no divide between the Unconscious and the conscious. Uh, there's no divide uh, between rooms of a house because you have canteens where everyone kind of eats together. And the question I ask is that you know obviously they did this for very idealistic reasons. You know we are united, we are creating modernity together. There's no reason for divides uh, to separate us. And one of the things I ask is, well, what do you lose when you completely get rid of that? When you get rid of boundaries? Um, when you get rid of say form? Right? Because form, literary form, is a kind of boundary. It creates different spaces. And in what ways that this kind of ways of creating other spaces, like a dream, is actually really central to critical thought. It's really central to the renewal of thinking. To have you know a room of one's own, so to speak. And so what I was trying to do was kind of think through both. Yeah, you know, On one hand, it wasn't that there is this, this idealism that that is really kind of powerful when you look at the late fifties. Um they weren't doing this out of malicious reasons, right? Um but but there was this deep, deep idealism. And on the other hand, there's this this really kind of troubling and, and really tragic idea that well, well if you get rid of all these boundaries, um you're left with nothing.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And that also, I think, really nicely evokes a theme that's run through our entire conversation, I think, um, which is the sort of um, edges and boundaries and twinning and kind of the dual nature of a lot of what we've been talking about. And I mean, for me, this conversation is really bringing that out in relief um, and sort of helping me to understand that as a central theme throughout the book, I think. Um, so as we move forward, you talked about a room of one's own that makes me think of Virginia Woolf, which makes me think of women in literature and brings us, I think, really nicely into one of the central concerns, at least as a result of my reading of it, that we see in chapter five. Now, chapter five takes us into the end of the Cultural Revolution after the death of Mao, and it focuses on critics and critiques of Jiang Qing, who present who positioned her, and this is the critics positioned her as what you call a hysterical dreamer who fell for her own novelistic conceits. This is a fascinating chapter. And the chapter mm-hmm. focuses on the stories of Zhong Pu. Can you say a little bit um, for listeners who may not be familiar with Zong Pu um, and Zhongpu's Pu's works about why her work is so important in this context? What drew you to her work in particular? Um, and why highlight it like this to do the work of this chapter?
0: Right. So when I was putting this project together, I came upon this story from 1978 called A Dream on Strings, Xianxiang the Meng by Zong Po. And I, I was gripped because, you know, the word dream was in the title. And when you look at the Maoist era, right, the Mao era from 1949 to 1976, very few stories are about dreams. Um, that is not something that was emphasized. Um, were dreams. And if you use the word dream, it was only as a metaphor for the socialist reality to come, or it was a metaphor to talk about imperialist hallucination.
1: right?
0: And so the final story from 1978 that has dream in the title, and it wins some award, actually, later that year, uh, it tells you that something's important, something's going on there. And so I, I, I looked into this figure of Songpu, Fu, who, who she was and, and what's going on. And, and she was the daughter of Feng a um, very famous professor of Chinese philosophy, um, uh, who was educated uh, under John Dewey in the United States, who returns to China um, after 1949 to help um, create a, a build a new China, um, and his daughter Tung Poo, was an English literature scholar, or is an English. Yep. Well, that's what she did, and. Um, a very gifted writer. I mean, absolutely comes from this very cultured family. Um, And she makes her debut in 1957 uh, with a story called Red Beams, uh, which is a story that is set in the civil war between the nationalists and the communists on the eve of the communist victory. And it's about this college, student, uh, a woman who's trying to choose between um, socialism and socialist activism or um, romantic love with this bourgeois esteem who wants to take her to the United States. Uh, and of course, she makes the right choice. She chooses socialism and she never regrets it. So it's a really interesting story. It's really interesting the ways in which this this writer was trying to think through personal life and emotion and desire and dreams, uh, what we might call women's literature, with these very grand, epic, political um, imperatives of their time, and doing it in a way that I thought was just really, really sensitive and intricate and um, thoughtful in a way that I just don't find in a lot of other texts written in the socialist era. There's a way in which Zongpu was able to kind of straddle the line between a bourgeois novel, so to speak, and socialist realism. And that she's playing that edge very deftly and with great sensitivity. Now, unfortunately, during the anti-rightist movement, um, Red Beans was, was uh, heavily criticized and Zongku had to um, undergo some kind of re-education for that. And then during the Cultural Revolution, Zongku, because she was a daughter of Fani uh they were both persecuted. Uh, uh, severely during the Cultural Revolution, so she she ran afoul of the uh, more more uh, uh, blunt dictates of the aesthetic policy of the times, um, and her work shows right. She's able to kind of grapple with different forms, different um, registers, all in the same text. Uh, and dreams feature prominently in both of these texts as again, these other spaces for thinking about um, temporal possibilities of the future in a way that you don't really see in a lot of the literature of that time. And that's why I find her so fascinating. The ways in which she's thinking about that, that kind of between reality but also about personal life and public life, political life, uh, between art and the social. Um, she's really kind of going back and forth constantly between these these binaries, which are such uh consistent binaries of what it means to be modern.
1: Mm-hmm. You say um, uh, specifically, and this is a really, I think, interesting part of the chapter, that her stories um, in the words of the chapter provide an insightful way to imagine an affective women-centered politics. Now, how does this contrast with the way that other critics were approaching their criticisms of Jiang Qing specifically? Um, and yes. you talk about this a lot right at the end of the chapter as well. So could you say a little bit about sure. that for So what's
0: really interesting when you look at the criticism of Jiang Qing, Shortly after she and the Gang of Four are arrested, all of these critics, literary critics, um, but also political critics are are basically pinning all the blame on Jiang Qing, right? And she was convenient because she was a woman. This is what happens when you have a woman who's head of state, right? And we also see this in the trial, the ways in which her femininity becomes an easy target. So, what we need a rational men at the helm, not, not this hysterical woman who, who was an actress, by the way. So, that was even worse, right? Uh, she was an artist. Um, and so it's interesting that uh, the words like hysteria, words like dreamer, dreaming, are used to kind of characterize Jiang Qing. Now, by the way, in the Cultural Revolution, when the Gang of Four were criticizing their enemies, they were also calling them hysterics too. So it's interesting how you know this rhetoric came back to bite uh, Jiang Qing. But in, in particularly with her, it was quite uh, pointed because of the fact that she was a woman and she was seen as kind of the instigator of this chaos. Um, and so you have this sense in which um, uh, the critiques of Jiang Qing and the critiques of the Cultural Revolution that emerged in the late 1970s, there was a real gendered thrust to it. Right? You know, these hysterics took over, and now the men are taking control again. So it's really interesting to see in Zong Pu's story, A Dream on Screens, from 1978, is that in some ways she totally recapitulates. This rhetoric, uh, Jiang Qing appears as the white bone demon who's having crazy dreams about China and, and enacting them. Right, we actually see this this rhetoric, so she's very much aware of this rhetoric. And yet the hero, the heroines of this story are these two women, an older woman um, from the earlier revolutionary era who's a cello teacher and this young orphan whose parents have been basically murdered by the Cultural Revolution, um, who comes to this older woman for cello lessons. And it becomes this, 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 interesting kind of confessional space between them. I mean, there, there's moments in this, in this story which I, I felt like I was watching a lifetime movie. <laughs> Uh, as you know, and, and and the cello lesson, and, and this, this this poor orphan is so traumatized that she becomes affectless. She's She becomes an incapable of feeling and expressing emotion because she's so scarred by what's happened to her parents, to her family. And so the cello lessons become uh, this avenue whereby the older revolutionary woman is trying to teach revolutionary passion through the cello lessons. Um, and then at some point, the girl is arrested because she She's been agitating against the King of Four, and she's never heard seen from again in the story. And the end of the story is this older woman having a dream that takes place at Tiananmen. And it's the girl playing a concert for all the souls of the Cultural Revolution playing a cello. And tears are streaming from her eyes as she's playing and tears are streaming from the eyes of everyone in the audience. I mean, it's this somewhat bizarre and, and, and you know, some might call it maudlin kind of ending. It happens in this dream. Um, but but I, I find it to be really fascinating and powerful. This this idea of the way in which dream, the body, emotion, music, Tiananmen, and space all come together in the conclusion of the story. It's a it's a, I think for me a very powerful allegory, but one that promises a future that has yet to come.
1: Speaking of conclusions, Roy, as we move to the conclusion of our conversation, um, there's so much in the conclusion of the book that I'd like to ask you about, but we won't have time um, for much. But I do want to make sure that we um, talk a little bit about or that you can talk a little bit about one of the first thing that comes up in the conclusion. And this is the notion of the Chinese dream, right? This mm-hmm. is on a lot of people's minds and lips right now, um, as a way of bringing us to our conclusion of our conversation. Would you mind saying a little bit about, for you, the way that this conversation and this study might animate or inform how we think about the Chinese dream moving forward?
0: Sure. I mean, it was ironic as I was working on this project that, you know, I had no idea that Xi Jinping would start in two thousand twelve, start advocating for this Chinese gym, this Zhongguo right? Um, and yet it's popping up and like at uh, 2012 and people would ask me you know hey Roy you're working on a book on dreams you should you should write a book about this I'm like you know I really don't want to I really <laughs> I'm done with dreams for now I, re- I let someone else write about this Um, and, and you know by the time that I finally got this book out to press I, I had to address it I'd say something about it right uh, but I didn't want you know, I didn't want to say too much because I, I'm not sure if I really have a lot to say about the Chinese dream in some ways it's such an, a weird interesting phenomenon to me um, but you know one of the things I- I wanted to point out is that rather than just simply comparing the Chinese dream to the American dream, I think it's really important to recognize that dreaming as a figure for thinking through the paradoxes of modernity is something that has, that the Chinese have grappled with since the late Qing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? It wasn't as if they just saw the American dream and Xi Jinping said, hey, let's have our own versions, have our own copycat, our own shanzhai, shanzhai of that, right? No, it was, uh, it's something that's always been a part of at the heart of Chinese intellectual discourse about modernity itself, um, and 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 if we look at that heritage, if we look at that discourse, it's a very critical one. It's one. It's not just about national unity and revival of culture. It's also thinking about corollary ideas of nightmare, of tragedy, um, of of um, the limits of knowledge right? It's not just this happy vision of of, of of unity. It's really this powerful figure that forces us to confront realities we may not want to confront. And so what I would hope is that, you know, that we don't retros- retrospectively apply this current rhetoric of the Chinese dream to think about 20th century Chinese literature, but that we look at what people were actually writing um, that they themselves were critics of the dream of la la Um And that for me is what I want people to take away from that.
1: So Roy, now that we are at the conclusion of our conversation and thank you so much for what I think has been a super fascinating way into the book. Um, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about or that didn't come up, but that you'd like to mention for listeners before we close?
0: Um, I would like to mention that um, the cover was of this book, which shows the backside of a ginormous panda, it's was amazing. not my idea.
1: <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, it's it is, a-
0: there, there is a crack team of uh, uh, designers in University of Washington Press, and they were the ones who proposed this idea to me. and it took me a few days to really think of do I really want a panda's? backside uh, <laughs> as a cover of my book. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I fell in love with this chunky panda, <laughs> and, and actually I actually think it really captures a lot of the themes of this book. It's tragicomic. Um, it's about limits. Um, it's about looking at the verso rather than the recto. Um, and so in many ways, I've, I've really grown to love uh, the cover because it really does encapsulate a lot of the paradoxes I, I try to explore. And I tell friends that, you know, if you need a reason to buy an ac- academic monograph, people will talk about this when they see it your coffee table. So get the one with the panda. <laughs> uh, so that, that's all I will say. Uh,
1: I, I will say, like, I love the panda's backside. So I'm completely in favor of the chunky panda. On the cover. Um, and I will say for listeners, yes, get a copy of the book so that you can have The Chunky Panda. Even if you're not at all interested in dreams, it's worth it for The Chunky Panda. <laughs> but Roy, now that we have talked about The Chunky Panda and congratulations on a super fascinating book, what's next for you? What are you working on now? And uh, what are you currently inspired by?
0: Sure. So I've been. Didn- Uh, pretty knee deep into uh, my second book project, which returns me to Russian literature. And so one of the things that uh, I was able to do after finishing um, the dissertation was to kind of revisit my interest in Russian and and the relationship between Russian literatures and Chinese literatures. And so the second book project um, looks at Chinese texts that deal with Russia, Soviet Union, and Russian-Soviet texts that deal with China. Um, And the proposed span is from uh, really the late Tsars, late Qing period, all the way to the end of the Cultural Revolution. And what I'm trying to do is think of this mutual fascination and this mutual figuration citation as symptomatic of a larger shared world historical predicament, uh, which is what does it mean for these two large land empires uh, to try to figure out their place in the world and the wake of Western capitalism. So it's really about world making and the ways in which the Russians, the Soviets and the Chinese and the Qing are trying to understand their place in the world through each other. Uh, And so I look at literary texts and I I focus on literary form as this space um, that's essential to this imagination. The literary form becomes a space of imagining the world in which they are situated and the crisis of that world in which they are situated and possible resolutions to this world crisis um, that both nations, countries, empires face, and the ways that these various authors in this long UK both from Russia, Soviet Union, and both from China, are using the space of literary form to reimagine um, this paradox and this predicament. Um, and so in many ways, you know, it's very different from my first book about dreams, and yet in many ways, it's not. In many ways, because it's about figuration, it's about space, um, geopolitical space, but also aesthetic space. Um, It's about what it means, uh, uh, how does literary form create unto itself a world? Um, And so those are the kind of concerns that I'm trying to address in this monograph. It's not a Historical monograph about the influence of Russia on China or the literary interactions. There's a lot of great work, uh, a lot of great scholars doing that. That's really not the crux of this project. It's really about thinking through the relation between world history and literary figuration.
1: Great. Well, Roy, best of luck with that project, which also thank sounds I'll thank you.' awesome. Be um, and thanks for taking time away from that to talk with me about this. It's really been a pleasure.
0: It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I mean, short of being interviewed by Terry Gross and Fresh Air, it's been a tremendous, tremendous honor. Thank you. Thank
1: you. You have been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining me and check us out again next time.